This is episode 40 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 40 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have Sahil Jaggi on the show. Sahil is an absolute expert, and I don't say that word lightly, but he is an expert in buying bungalows in Toronto, Ontario. He's been doing it since, uh, it sounds like around 2010, based on our conversation today, and he has managed to acquire $14 million in properties in Toronto right now, and he's sitting at roughly a 50% loan to values, meaning that he's got half that in equity. So it sounds like he's got a net worth ranging in the five to $7 million range based on our conversation today. The guy doesn't seem to sleep, and it was an extremely interesting conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed our talk, and you're going to get nothing but gold nuggets out of this podcast. He talks about the fundamentals of picking a great area to invest in, the fundamentals that affect property values, why you want to be close to the water, how you can play off the knowledge and expertise of people who are investing a lot of money into certain areas to decide which ones they want to develop. So you can follow developers, find out what they're going to do and piggyback off of that and profit. His tips were absolutely priceless and I know you're going to enjoy this. Just a quick bit of housekeeping before we get started with the episode. The next Greater Hamilton REI meetup is happening this week. So it's happening on November 21st at 7 p.m. at the Nickelbrook Brewery. If you're not already on the guest list, you're going to want to make sure that you reach out to me or you click on the Greater Hamilton REI meetup group link in the show notes of this episode so that you can get joined up and get yourself on the guest list. Please go ahead and do that now. Thank you very much. Please enjoy episode 40 with Sahil Jaggi. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Sahil Jaggi on the show and he is a very interesting character. I first heard about him in a newspaper article that somebody sent to me uh, and then randomly reached out to me and I thought that was perfect. I was thinking I'd like to have you on the podcast. So uh, first off, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Yeah, well, thank you very much for coming. Yeah, of course. If you wouldn't mind, it's been a long time since I read that article, but I, I just, I'll give you my recollection. I think at the time it said you had like 10 houses that you'd acquired in Toronto that you, you kind of started from nothing. And I don't know the mix of houses that, that they are, but I think you gave me an updated statistic and you're at even more now. Um, when did you start investing and, and tell me what your portfolio looks like right now? Cool. So, uh, I started when I was 24. Uh, I come from an investment banking background. So straight out of university, I was in New York. I was doing a year and a half on Wall Street. I was doing investment banking. Uh, I realized that it wasn't my calling. It didn't resonate with me. Came right back to Toronto where, you know, I have my friends. My family actually lives back home. Um, so I started, well, the year and a half that I worked in Wall Street, and keep in mind, this is before 2008 when the crash hadn't happened. So the people were actually well paid in, yeah. in banking jobs. So I started as an analyst in equity capital markets Saved a bit of money, so I had about uh, $60,000, $70,000 saved up. Um, so when I came back to Toronto, uh, I just the first thing I wanted to do was completely switch out of the finance role. I was like, I don't want to be in finance anymore. So I took up a role in corporate sales with Nestle. And okay. the job as a Nestle sales rep is that you're going from like client to client, so your job is very mobile. Uh, when I uh, did that, you know, I started getting a little curious about the houses, and you know, I was like, starting to look for a condo for myself at the time. How old and were you at that time? I was time? 24. 24, okay. So I just turned 24 um, at the time. And I, you know, the, the first thing about real estate that I knew was like, hey, I, I think I should stop wasting money on rent and start buying something for myself. So there was, was nothing to do with like, hey, I want to be a real estate investor or anything like that. It was it, That came later. So at 24, when I was looking to buy uh, a condo and, uh, you know, I realized that at the time, the two bedroom was like about 400,000 on near Young and Finch, Young and Shepherd, which is close to my work and my territory. And as a salesperson, you have to live in your territory, even though you're a mobile agent for Nestle. The only restriction is that you have to live in the area that you're managing for your clients. So that was Young and Finch for me, which is North York. Okay, North York. Um, so when I uh, started and I was looking for a two-bedroom condo and my plan was to rent out the other room and live in a two-bedroom, and I realized that the small bungalows right behind Young Street were like about 500000 So at the time, what I did was, you know, I said, it makes more sense to buy like this like a bungalow and maybe live in the basement, rent out my upstairs. And I started exactly like that. So I bought something for a 50 foot lot right behind Bunk, uh, Young Street. And it was uh, 515,000 moved into the basement and I rented out the top floor and that was pretty much paying my mortgage. 
uh, it was a little bit of a reality check because the house was a complete dump. And I still remember uh, I didn't, I barely even, at the time, I didn't also have good guidance because uh, the real estate agent never explained me properly what the closing costs were. So I just made it to close that house. And I remember I didn't even have enough to even pay for like a really good mattress or anything. So I just had like an air mattress living in the basement. It was like, you know, a really, really bad dumpy basement. But that's how I started. Fast forward five years from that. So in 2015 and or 16, I actually sold that same house for $1.55 million, which means I cleared a million dollars. That was my first. Wow. And keep in mind, from 2010, when I started buying these bungalows, uh, uh, I started, I realized that real estate is something that I was just naturally passionate about. So every day after work for two, three hours, I would just completely zone out into like realtor.ca and those things, trying to like get to know more about the housing market. And I think I've, I had found my passion. So um, from 2010 today to 2019, if you fast forward today, I own a uh, for close to a $14 million portfolio that comprises of uh, 12 properties in Toronto. Uh, two properties that I also own with four other partners are just commercial mixed use uh, on Lakeshore. So in t- total 14 properties that I'm uh, an owner of. How many doors? Uh, so doors would be 21. Because uh, most of these properties are uh, like uh, they're duplexes. So they're main floor and basement separate and then a couple of condos. And I also have uh, a few houses that I've uh, turned into like, a, you know, a rooming house sort of thing. So that increases the, the number of doors. Yeah. So a couple of interesting things there. One rooming house. Uh, and the other thing is when it was your home, yeah. man, you picked the right one, the right time to buy a home in Toronto to go from 515 to you said 155 one point by one five so i, I one wanted five. exactly like a one million clear exactly one million clear and the beautiful thing is is when it's your home yeah. that's tax-free exactly that's a tax-free gain so you you were able to clear probably more than a million by the time your mortgage pay down had been calculated exactly. into there yeah. so that probably set you up um did you own any other properties in that time or was that the capital that you used no so to deploy? i've been on a buying spree since 2010 Okay. Uh, from 2010 to 2012, and the property went from like that same house had gone up from 515 to like in the 700, 800 mark. I refinanced to buy another property. And then by 2010 to 2016, I think I owned about five properties in Toronto. And I also was uh, doing joint ventures. So I started doing joint ventures really early. So the minute I realized that the mortgage is not going to support the amount of properties that I can buy, yeah. I started joint venturing. I started reaching out to people with similar goals. And one of my friends and me bought a property. Then one of my uncles and me bought a property. So I was like constantly looking for people who can pitch in the down payment and using their name, we can take a mortgage. And you're absolutely right. 2010, you could be on a plane, throw a dart anywhere in Toronto. Everything is increased. But I think what separates a really good investor from, you know, every person making money in real estate is that how much have you increased above market? So any property that I've picked or any property that I've, uh, you know, bought in my portfolio comes with a lot of research, comes with a lot of, uh, you know, work, a lot of due diligence. And hence, I've always been able to beat the market by double digit figures, right? And that's where where to buy comes in. How do you find, like you you just opened the, opened the floodgates there for the questions to come. So how do you find a quote unquote good deal? Right. So the first thing I think about real estate is that I follow uh, and I narrow it down to a neighborhood, right? I know that a lot of investors are all about looking for different deals in different neighborhoods, whatever makes sense, buy it. For me, I'm a believer that you have to start, you have to look for neighborhoods. And if the neighborhood matches all your checklists, then you have to like focus more on buying those neighborhoods. So for example, in 2010 to 2013, um, I was purchasing in that Young and Finch corridor. And in that three to four years, property almost doubled in that area, right? So around the five hundred to six hundred thousand dollars. We're talking like bungalows, for example, just to like make it easy. So a bungalow five hundred thousand to a million jump came in that two thousand and ten to two thousand and thirteen. At that time, I have a very simple checklist. You have to be fifteen to twenty minutes from downtown Toronto. You have to be close to highways. You have to be close to TTC. And that came to me because I think Toronto's infrastructure compared to a lot of the other good cities in the world still sucks. Oh right? yeah, it does. So uh, my uh, my logic was that if you are buying something that is close to these subways and that is close to TTC and that is giving you that good infrastructure ability, I think that will always be scarce and that is hard to find. So even till today, nine years later, and now I'm also working with lots and lots of investor clients because I'm also like working as a real estate agent and helping a lot of people buy. One thing that I was telling me, you have to be close to the TTC. Your commute to downtown has to be within that 20 to 30 minutes at the max, 
right? And that's because I think there's like downtown Toronto now with the tech industry booming is constantly attracting more and more people from different parts of the world. Toronto is becoming huge in the international as a big city. It's coming up to be one of the best cities in the world to live in. I think it was the seventh best city last year. Okay. Um, so my logic is how do we, we need to buy housing, freehold bungalows, uh, close to the subways, close to the highways, so that your actual commute to downtown is going to be uh, very easy and very good. Do you only buy freeholds or are you buying condos too? I like have condo also towns? purchased condos to add a little bit more diversity to my uh, my uh, portfolio. But So I own two condos today. Condo like apartments or condo towns? Condominiums. Okay. So it's two bedroom, two condos. So I own one yeah. in Young and Shepherd, one on Allen and Shepherd where the Shepherd West Station is. And are these fairly new construction or older buildings? Uh, Beecroft uh, that I purchased was, uh, it's about 12 years old, but a really well-managed building and the rents are fantastic. You actually have the underground access straight into the subway, the Shepherd Station, mm. So which is one of the good plus points. You never have issues with renting the property. So you're able to basically beat the market in your opinion, the main reason you have and you've done it consistently would be because you've purchased in the that based on your checklist, the 10 to, or 15 to 20 minutes to downtown, including any transit time. So then close to highways, close to TCC. Exactly. Um, I don't I also strongly believe, like I said, 2010 to 2016, you could have purchased near these TTC bungalows and uh, been fine. But in 2014, when the bungalow prices crossed that one million, a very simple logic came back to me. If you're putting 20% down and you're not recovering uh, all your cash outflow with rental income, that means that's a very clear sign to me that the area is now saturated. So in 2014, I completely switched and I went over to the East End. So I went to the upper beaches and Birchcliff area. As a real estate investor, I understand that you have to realize that the area and your comfort zone, when it when it's saturated, when it's hit the point that you know what, now area, this property that I purchased for 500, 600, 700,000 has crossed a million and the 20% down will simply not cover your cash flows. That's an indication to me that you have to switch the area, switch the neighborhood. So, so to clarify, so if you put 20% down out of your own cash and you're not cash flowing, then that's not, that's not a good investment. That to me is not a good investment. And I'll tell you, like a lot of people buy property just to get that 500, 600, $700 in their pocket every month. My strategy is that I buy properties that are going to have clear indication of accelerated equity growth. But cash negative is still an issue. So as long yes. as I'm breaking even and I'm buying in areas that I can see clear equity growth coming into, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. But cash negative with 20% down is not acceptable in my uh, model. Now, I'm curious what uh, your thoughts are on this, because I just heard uh, a person speaking the other day about why regular rentals don't cash flow. Now, I don't agree with that point of view, but I do I do see where he was coming from. And he was basically saying that that properties don't really cash flow because everyone underestimates maintenance and life cycle maintenance where you've got a roof, you know, roof comes along. I just got quoted fifteen thousand dollars on a roof on one of my properties in London not expecting it at all. Now, luckily we were able to patch it, but you know, one of the shingles blew off and it turns out, you know, it's not done. It's, old, yeah. it's not done quite right. It was, it was nailed to the old barn boards rather than a resheeting. They should have resheeted it with plywood before they put the shingles on, but they didn't anyways. So these things come up and I've seen it and I, I, I would always budget 5%. And now I look at that number and yes, yeah, some years 5% is enough. And you know what? The odd year, I don't even use 5%. Right. And my stuff is newer. It's, it's well renovated, but it's just these things just seem to happen. I had a skunk get inside one of my houses, <laughs> like uh, so. I had to do you know an abatement there, and and it's just it's really weird these things that come up. So you've obviously got a lot of experience in this. Do you budget a maintenance number when you say break even, or are you relying on your active income to cover shortfalls when they come? So uh, you know, there's a lot of unseen in real estate. I mean, and, and you can be as much careful as you want upfront, but the fact that I'm not sure if you're buying similar properties like me, I'm buying older bungalows. You have to apportion that five to 7% is usually my number as well. Mm-hmm. I'll have three months of mortgage in my bank account over and above the 20% and closing cost. Plus I'll have about like, you know, usually about like $500 a month budgeted into that whole for the whole year. So about $6,000 to $10,000 for these bungalows sitting aside. Just across the portfolio. That's right. 500 a month just for ris- miscellaneous stuff on top of your 5 to 7% That's maintenance right. Just allowance. to see these unforeseen. And keep yeah. in mind, if I'm buying with a joint venture, I'll prepare them for the same. So yeah. you can share that cost as they come in. Yeah, the more I rethink it, the more I think that from my own evaluation standpoint, everyone's different, but I'd rather just look at a 10% budget for maintenance because 
it just seems percent of the cost of the property like the value? no 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 10 percent of the rents rents Got so it. on okay. an annual basis if uh if i'm collecting fifty thousand dollars in gross rent then i'm gonna have five thousand budgeted for maintenance and it's not hard to see how that could be spent that's right you know what that's that's that sounds about right yeah, I don't think so you're off on that. I used to, you know, I used to think 5% was enough, but I'm, the more I'm looking at my numbers, I'm thinking I need to probably uh, gross that up a little bit. But then, like I said, some properties I get off like the entire year, you know, scot-free, the tenants don't turn over and that's really nice. So then you don't, you know, I don't have those costs either. Um, so you're operating a lot of rental properties. Right. Uh, you mentioned one is a rooming house. Yes. Tell me about that one. When I say a rooming house, maybe I, uh, so main floor is rented to wife, one family, and then the basement has three rooms that I rent as three different rooms. So that constitutes as four doors. But legally right? it's a duplex? No. No? Legally no. it's... It's not legally a duplex. Is it legally a single family? It's legally a single family. Okay. Correct. And uh, it's not something that I think uh, a lot of people, there's a lot of controversy around it. There's a lot of people that is questioning but you know what? I take my precautions. I do as best as I can to make sure that it's fire rated. But to turn a regular bungalow that in future I'm going to build, because now I'm also into building these a lot of these bungalows, right? Mm-hmm. I've already completed two full custom homes uh, out of these bungalows. So the point is that I buy these properties with that next three to five years hold, maximizing my rent in the meantime, and then eventually turning them on and flipping them as brand mm-hmm. new construction. Right. So it doesn't make sense for me to like spend sixty, seventy thousand dollars going through yeah. the process of legalizing them just for that period of three to five, uh, three to five years. Okay. So, so that property is legally a single family home. It's a bungalow. Where did you say, where in the city is it located? Young and Finch. Young and Finch. So still in North York. Yeah. And what were you in? What, what do your numbers look like on that one? So in 2011, I bought that property for 660,000. Okay. Um, I get about $4,200 in rent. Upstairs gives me $2,400. And downstairs gives me, uh, I think it's uh, about $1,700. So that's $4,200 a month, $4,100. $4,100 a month. Uh, What kind of cash flow do you see off of of that rent? So I have a balance. I just finished refinancing it because the market value of that property is close to $1.6 million. So I have about a million, more than $1.2 million in equity sitting in that property. I just refinanced it up to $500,000. So my cash flow today is that I'm cashing in about $1,400 to $1,500 a month. You're still getting fourteen hundred, yeah. Because my mortgage is about twenty four, twenty five plus property taxes about two to three hundred dollars. Okay, and uh, it's in good shape. So I've never really had any major issues with the property except for when I purchased it, I put about fifteen to twenty k in renovations. Wow. I mean, if we wanted to just, I know I do this my my simple cash flow calculation. If we wanted to to calculate your numbers, I mean, your appreciation is insane. But yeah, let's just say annual cash flow is uh, is the fourteen hundred times. Uh, and that's 12. one of the only properties that's giving me that much cash flow because remaining properties, as soon yeah. as I have around 50% loan to value, I usually refinance mm-hmm. it back to 65%. My okay. entire portfolio across the board is total loan to value is 50%. And that can show you that when I purchase properties, my my singular focus is that, is this property going to appreciate faster than market? Is this property going to have that accelerated equity growth and just giving me that break-even model. Right. And so you weren't looking uh, at the time, you weren't specifically looking to put down 50%. You were just putting down the minimum 20%. and watching them always. watching yeah. them grow. So always exactly. 20%. Uh, so if we said originally, I don't know, your your mortgage on 660 would have been around, what, 500 yes. originally? Yeah. You said you, you refinanced it back up to 500. That's right. Okay. So you just pulled that money back out. So you would have been paying down 15000 a year mm-hmm. on that mortgage. I just used my 3% estimate, yeah. which isn't completely accurate, but it's yeah. close. It's yeah. 16800 in cash flow in the year uh so sixty six thousand dollars in appreciation if we figure even ten percent which right. toronto was doing at the time not something we can continue to predict it but is. i mean in hindsight i just thought it'd be cool to calculate this number because there are other markets that do see these kind of inflation rates and and maybe we can talk about how how to predict some of those but just looking at at those numbers your total return on on that this. property is a very unrealistic thing to go out there and expect today yeah i said that say that to every investor who comes to me like how do you do that i want to do the same it's not realistic to expect those kinds of returns today it's it's obviously as an investor you can't go in with the assumption that you're going to be getting what four or five hundred no not return. at all like you just you just can't but if you take enough swings eventually you hit a home run that's right yeah. that was one of the home run properties yeah. and today i'm buying in an area that's not north york that's not east it's completely different 
costs. But that model always has to stay the same. I buy in sweet spots of between 600 to 800, but I want the property to cost a million. And that's when you switch. So 600 to 800 is your sweet spot right now. That's my sweet spot. So today. that in, would your clients get the same advice? Like, Absolutely. That, I uh, think there's uh, as much as people like to think that, oh, average price is this and that. I think there's still a lot of areas. Well, not a lot. I, I would say there's still areas that are poised for some amazing growth. Uh, my entrance, my entry point is always less than 900 or 800. I don't like to purchase properties in Toronto, considering I'm only buying in Toronto. I haven't stepped out of Toronto even once yet. And um, is that I want to buy properties that are about maybe 20 to 30 minutes or 15 to 20 minutes from Toronto in public transit. And even if the size of the bungalows start getting smaller, for example, initially I was buying 50 foot lots, then I'm buying 35 foot lots. Today I'm looking for 25 foot lots and you can still get really good 25 foot lots checking off all those models and still giving you a break-even cash flow and still doing that, uh, you know, uh, they're poised for some amazing growth. Your price range is 600 to 800. Your clients and yourself, you're going and you're looking for stuff. Um, transit out on the East End in Toronto isn't the greatest. So are you getting close to Go Transit? Yes. Yeah, go so Train. The, yeah, counts. the Go Train. Yeah, so so go today, tra- for example, last purchase pro- uh, property that I purchased was in Alderwood. Do you know the area? Alderwood, no. Is that like close South to Scarborough or? South of Tobago. Oh, South of Tobago. Oh, that's, so now that's West End. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So initially started with North. Then I went to East. East is now too saturated for me. So I moved over to the West. In the last three to four years, I've purchased about six properties just in South of Tobago. That's a sweet spot for me. Near the water, close to the go train station of Long Branch and Mimico. Yeah. Okay. So is that near like Park Lawn or exactly. west, west of that? Very or? close to that. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's got to be South. So I'm close to like the Lakeshore. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have a friend that lives right down down in that area. Parkland Lakeshore. Yeah, yeah that's that's, cool that's the next little uh, hub. I've watched that area grow so oh, aggressively. It's amazing. I've sold a lot of units there. The values have just gone through it's gone the roof. Crazy now. Well, as this as is the story with any uh, any area of Toronto in the last ten years, it's been insane. My wife bought one downtown, uh, King and Portland area, and has seen the value double since 2015. Yeah. That's, I mean, how do you compare? Like, how do people do that? Um, you know, we, and I looked up like what the guy before her, you know, he had owned it for five years. Yeah. He bought it for like 410, I think. And um, she bought it from him for 510 oh after God. five years. <laughs> so he, he basically got money. Everybody nothing. made money. But yeah, except <laughs> he, well, for he that made guy. some. He lost yeah. the, the thing is that in 2017 to 2018, where that little drop came and when the three things were done, right? Interest rate increased and then the, you know, the stress test introduced and all that stuff. Everybody got priced out a little bit from the detached market and they still, there was still appetite to buy. So the investors and end users were running toward the condo and the condos do really well. Right. Yeah, you're right. That, and this is an interesting conversation. We could talk all day long about kind of some of the economic drivers in Toronto, why you have faith there, what's changed. That's a great point you just made. I mean, people uh, over a million dollars on a bungalow, affordability is, is just ridiculous. I mean, the average Canadian, just their their income has not grown to pace appreciation. So affordability is on its way out, especially in Toronto. Right. So they're moving over to condos, smaller and smaller. We're going to see that trend. Like I, higher and higher. <laughs> I, I went to Manhattan and, you know, stayed in a hotel room and literally your bathroom and your bedroom are in the same room. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's coming for Toronto. Right. You know, the little, little bachelors. So what do you think makes Toronto a great city to invest in? What fundamentals could we take from Toronto and apply to like Manhattan or LA. Um, you know, maybe you can enlighten our, uh, our viewers and listeners Absolutely. a little bit. So why I think Toronto is good to invest in, I still think Toronto is good to invest in. Uh, number one, I think one of the things that people forget is political stability, right? When you look at countries like, you know, anywhere in South America, you're looking at India, Asia, China, whatever. Uh, Canada or Toronto for that matter is one of the best places where people can, you know, there's a lot of, freedom of live like people feel like they can come here and be themselves there's a lot of like political stability in that sense right economic factors such as like uh there's still good you can still buy stuff for like low interest rates compared to a lot of a lot of other countries like i was just in dubai and india and interest rates in some of those places are up to like six seven percent to buy to get a loan for buy a house so uh, and then there's other stuff for example there's you also have to follow a lot of trends um, so I buy closely in the last five to six years. I've tried to be as close as I can to Lake Ontario, for example. Okay. I want to be within that five minute distance to Lake Ontario. And I think the concept of being around the water is becoming very, is blowing up. 
So if you go to big cities like New York, uh, Singapore, any of those cities, you'll see that real estate always does well near the water. It's not just about following economic trends or numbers, also about looking at different living trends, right? So if you've seen in the last five or six years, I live right on the lake, so I can see how much the the amount of boats in the Lake Ontario is starting bigger and all that stuff. The concept of yacht clubs is becoming really big. So to me, it's like, you know, if you can still buy a bungalow for about seven to 800,000 and be like that five minutes distance to that hiking and right on the lake, that's an amazing, amazing thing to have. Uh, the other thing is, I think tech industry is one of the one of the big factors. I think your unemployment's low. You mean there's a lot of, a lot of immigrants that can still come into the country, get amazing tech jobs. I know there's you know thousands of people. I was talking to an immigration lawyer the other day, and I was trying to have like some kind of a collaboration with him. And I said, look, you know, you're moving a lot of people into this city, and of course these people need housing. And he was giving me numbers that was just blowing my mind. You know, he was telling me stuff like, you know, there's every single person who's applying to be uh, coming into Toronto, like I'm seeing more or less all of them are IT backgrounds and mm-hmm. they're getting amazing tech sector jobs and tech is just booming in the city, right? Another thing is it's also the psychologically when you're in a country like India or when you're in like Middle East or your South America or even Mexico, when they say we want to move to Canada, they don't, th- they don't know Barry. They don't know these like yeah. small towns. The first thing that comes to their mind is Toronto. And an immigrant's dream is always to begin move into, or at least start with that big city. Uh, that's why I think every person wants to start with Toronto because that's where they have the security that we will find a job because there's a lot of jobs available. So that's another thing. I think the driving force of like people wanting to start off in Toronto and then branch out in the suburbs to see where home is for them, right? Uh, some of the other thing is like, you know, there's obviously healthcare, education, a good standard of living for a lot of people. And you can't take that away from, from Toronto at all. I mean, minus the weather, I think this is one of the best cities to, to live in period. Yeah, I do. I do love, you know, how clean it is. I, I love that about Canada, I, you know, spend some time in some of the, uh, you know, the non core areas of the U S and, and then come back to Canada and see like, there are some differences as a kid. I could never really see those differences, but, uh, you know, the care and, and, you know, are, are, we are heavily taxed for it, yeah. uh, but you know we do have, absolutely have some great benefits for it. So, um, if you weren't investing in Canada, or sorry, if you weren't investing in Toronto, where would your your next investing to be destination honest, be? Uh, I don't follow international real estate as much. Uh, I am really well traveled in the sense that I, traveling is also one of my passions. So whenever I do go to countries, I'm automatically inclined towards finding out how much is real estate here and there. Mm-hmm. So. When I go to countries again, like for example, I was in Colombia for three weeks and I was just looking at places there. And yeah, if you start looking into, hey, if you buy this and you Airbnb it, you make a lot of money and the cash flows are going to be amazing. But to me, it's also about risk aversity, mm-hmm. right? It's not just about return, return, cash flow. It's also about how much is my capital protected in the city, right? Yeah. It, and that again ties it back to that political stability for me. For me, how, the first step is that you have to make sure wherever you're putting your money is secure. And that's why you're seeing a lot of money, a lot of investors turning towards Canada instead of U.S. Because that um, security is being taken away from these people, right? It used to be the American dream, and that's turning into a Canadian dream now. If you talk to a lot of people like in Mexico and all these places, they're moving into Canada, and there's a lot of demand of people wanting to come into Toronto instead, right? So uh, in short, I, I, to be honest, I couldn't give you an answer. I think for me, it always comes, and that's the reason I haven't stepped out of Toronto even in the, in the GTA, I think the security and that blank, like, for example, when the housing market crashed in New York or, or in states, the whole thing, Manhattan was still okay, right? Yeah. The core always remains strong. And that's where yeah. I think that risk is versed in, uh, in Toronto. Well, that's, that's the, uh, you know, the other thing I was going to ask you, because you spend some time in Manhattan, right? Yeah. And, and Manhattan obviously has some of the fundamentals. You're surrounded by water. You can't replicate that uh, necessarily somewhere else. And of course, there's tons of jobs surrounding area. I mean, it's expensive as heck to live there. More expensive than Toronto at the moment. You know, you see some of those fundamentals carrying over. You obviously just mentioned the core doesn't really seem to be affected by the downturns as much as the suburbs. Yeah. And you also want to look at other things like the income levels in Toronto have increased so much, right? There's money in the country. Oh, sorry, money in the city. So these people, like areas like downtown Toronto, which I, I know it's not easy for anybody to just go buy a one bedroom for like 600000 and call it a day, right? It doesn't make sense from any standpoint. But I think there's definitely a Manhattanization of Toronto happening in the last four to five years. I mean, you can look at the skyline alone is doing so well. 
Um, and, you know, I, I, I look at other things like, you know, just the awareness of sport, the music, the culture, everything is blowing up in Toronto. And I've actually spoken to a lot of people who moved here from like, let's say South Korea or China. And I talked to them, why did you pick Toronto to move here? And you'll get answers that have nothing to do with it. Hey, we let, we came here because of the hip hop culture coming in Toronto. We came here because universities are a lot cheaper than Toronto. There's so many different reasons. And you can write a book on why people want to move in Toronto, right? And direct effect of that is what you're seeing, which is that there's a huge gap between the demand and supply, right? But condos can still be built. There is still land for condos to be built. And that's why I try to see where can I buy freehold. So one of the dynamics or one of the things that I will look at in my checklist is that I go to the, for example, the city hall. And I, you know, I'll take my architect and you know, let's go to the city hall and find out in South Republic what new projects are being proposed by big builders like Minto, Tridel, et cetera. So I'll go and I'll see. And then you, I'm not looking for their presentation centers to pay them a high amount of money because I think pre-construction, anybody who's buying pre-construction today, you know, they, I think a lot of them is just because people don't know what else to buy or it's just a lot of misconception about pre-construction and half of them don't even know what closing cost of pre-construction involves. So what I'm looking for is, where is Tridel looking to buy its next land and yeah. develop that? So what's the next Liberty Village? What's exactly. the next uh, And then what I'm doing Lawn is Village. trying to buy bungalows two minutes from that, five minutes from that. And that gives me that validation of these people are buying properties in this little neighborhood and turning them away. Oh, sorry, turning them into like big developments. I want to be buying a freehold bungalow close by because I think this area is poised towards that growth. And if this guy is dumping billions in it, I'm sure like, you know, it's one of the indicators that I will look at every time I buy a property. That's pure gold. I think that might be my highlight <laughs> for this video. Um, yeah. It's like how people people look at what is what is Home Depot doing? What are what is Lowe's doing? Right. They look to the the company that did Absolutely. you know millions of dollars in research before just yeah. de- deciding to invest in an exactly. area. It's common sense. Yeah. yeah, that's that's beautiful. And and with that very notion, I can see why you've beat the market if you've applied that that principle consistently. And Andrew, that's just one of the things like uh, I, I, I literally have a checklist where I just have like 10 to 15 reasons why I buy a property yeah. where I buy a property. So you've given us the 15 to 20 downtown to downtown, close to the highways, close, close to, to the highways, TTC. Yeah, close to highways, close to TTC, uh, good schools, parks, where are the big builders buying? Also, one of the metrics that I will look at is that it's not just about, you know, narrowing down a neighborhood or an area. It's also about the streets. So I will pick the streets handpicked too. So well, for example... All these houses where I'm buying are mainly just Second World War homes, right? These bungalows are built back so in... So 1950s? Exactly. They're 1950s built. And they were built as subdivisions back in the day. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a lineup of bungalows that look very exact, very much exactly the same. Then you'll start seeing there's bungalow, 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 big house. Bungalow, 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 big house. That shows me that there's validation that these big houses that are selling... That custom builders are coming into the market. For example, there's three types of buyers in the market, right? You're... Question that becomes is that when you're buying a property and you're saying, I think this property will appreciate, the question you have to ask yourself is, who is going to be the buyer of this property and pay me a lot more in three to four years? End user, investor, or builder? Builders, which is that constitutes a big percentage of that market. So when you're buying a condo, townhouse, or semi, you're eliminating the whole big portion of the fact that somebody wants to buy a house, fix it, and flip it. I want that to be one of my buyers too, which is why these bungalows again. So you're not going in to do a whole bunch of work. Like you said, you're you're kind of waiting for somebody else to want to do that work. Well, in the last three, four years, when I sold a couple of these bungalows to builders, I think that, and also, you know, I've done really well in real estate. So I have the power of equity to now build these properties, which is why now I've become a full-blown builder of my own properties. You have your building company, Terion? Exactly. No, I don't have Terion because I yeah. build only for myself. Okay. So I'm not building for other people. Yeah, so, so I'm you're building, building your home, moving exactly, in. Exactly, but yeah. I'm building them full-fledged, like custom brand new homes. So what I, one of the things I look at is that if I buy Bangalore today, buy it, hold it, in five years, when more of these new houses come on the market and the prices have increased... That's when I enter, build, tear this bungalow down, build it, and I sell it for like $2 million. I can actually give you a live example of something that I did. So in 2012, I bought a property for 700 clean with a partner in, uh, again, that Young and Shepherd area. In 2016, the property was worth about $1.1 million, right, without doing much work. We were just renting it as is when we bought it. The property just, you know, appreciated like crazy. Uh, me and my partner decided to build a brand new custom 3,000 square feet home in that 50 by 120 feet lot. 
we spent, we refinanced two to 300,000. I refinanced money from some other property and I also saved up working my day job. And my partner had some money. So anyway, we put together a construction budget of 700,000. We spent 700,000 building a custom home and we, we sold it for 2.6 million. So 700,000 plus another 700,000, 1.4, and we sold it for 2.6. You technically, if you just sold it, you would have been in for 1.4. At that time in 2017, 2.4. two point yeah, 2007, it would be like about if I had sold it without. If you just sorry, if you just sold, so I'm just trying to think of like if you if you let some if you let me buy it from you for market value at 1.6 million plus a 700 on top of that, so I'm at 2.3. So there's a 300 thousand dollar margin in there exactly. for a builder if they so chose. Exactly. So I'm okay. I'm playing the role of that builder, but the point is that when you buy a property, you want to look at the what's happening on the street. Are these bungalows? Are there a lot of custom homes? custom builders confident buying these bungalows, building them and selling them. And if there's more new homes coming and these old bungalows going, that shows that there's a trend of this neighborhood also turning into a nice big luxury neighborhood. Yeah. So you're looking for, I think Don Campbell calls it an area in transition in his his book. So the telltale signs is is you do see a couple of of new builds mixed in with the old wartime houses. Exactly. So that's that's a starting sign. So is that where your research would start? Take a little drive around or you start in City Hall, you find out where the spots are, put them, put a pin on the map. It's all part of the checklist. Yeah. So it's not like one comes before the other. Yeah. If it doesn't mark, if it doesn't check mark for me, I'm moving on to the so next you, street. Yeah, your checklist, if, if one of them is not ticked, do you not buy in that area? Well, it depends. Also, sometimes you can get really good deals, right? For example, the guy, the seller is just in a desperate sale or now that I'm also a real estate agent, it gives me that direct access to MLS. I'm in the heart of the market. I know exactly what's going on in most yeah. of the streets that I'm keeping my eye on. So if sometimes an odd deal comes in and maybe it's not, you know, uh, it's, it's maybe going to take more than three to five years to get to where I want it to be. It'll be a nice buy and hold. I'll do it. But 80% of the time I will buy if all my checklist is always tick, 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 tick. 15 to 20 minutes, bungalows, you know, is big builders coming into the area? Does it cater to all kinds of buyers in the next three to four years, which is end users, investors, builders? Um, and also like these days I'm playing a big, big thing that I, I want to be close to the water no matter where I buy. I want it to be that. That's a huge feature. Absolutely it is. Where do you see the next pocket in Toronto? Like, where do you see a lot of developers focusing energy that has not yet come to fruition? So you're asking all my secrets now. Eh? I'm just kidding. G- give us at least one. <laughs> all right. So I would say, uh, you know, uh, Lakeview is one of my really good uh, good areas. It's a little pocket between Port Credit and Long Branch. Lakeview is a fantastic little pocket. Anybody who's driving through is know that that area is screaming for development. There's already, and it's like just off of Lakeshore. So it's a pocket between Long Branch and Port Credit. It's a really awkward pocket because there's a lot of like gas stations, old motels. Yeah. A lot of these motels are now being taken away and proposals are in place to put small, uh, like eight to nine story small condos. Look for streets behind that. See what's going on. You'll see a bunch of bungalows. And they'll and probably be much, exactly. much cheaper than... Bungalows going for seven to 800,000 and new houses, which means the person who's taking these bungalows, building them and selling them are close to 1.8. 1.8. So, set- so you have the $1.8 million homes and you have the $700,000 homes. So walk me through us? walk me through buying a $700,000 home in one of those areas. Like that's a perfect example because that's kind of in your target range. You said 6 to 800. So you sure. find a let's, 700 there. I'll give you the numbers, sure. Yeah, so 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 let's so, say we find a bungalow, typically you'll find something for let's say $750,000 purchase price. Okay. You're putting 20% down. All right. And with your closing costs and everything, mortgage payment is what? Um, well, I don't have a mortgage calculator on here. Um, that's a good question. So basically with $750,000 on the rental also supports that payment. So for example, if most of you probably be like a $2,700 payment. Yeah. So you're looking at 2,700, maybe the tax and everything all in about 3,000. Okay. Um, so, so your mortgage would be around 600 grand. Um, all your expenses are going to be, you said around 3,000. Yeah. Okay, inclu- well, expenses and mortgage. Right, so about yeah. three thousand. You rent out the upstairs for twenty two hundred. You rent out the basement for about fifteen hundred. So twenty two hundred. Now here's the the legal conversion, or or just throw them Look, in there. <laughs> that's a gray area. I'm not going to talk about, but you you know exactly. Like lo- the point is that city doesn't make it easy for you to just turn a bungalow into a legal duplex. You got to raise the floor. You got to do fire rated stuff. Yeah, these bungalows are not being bought by me, at least to keep forever yeah i'm looking for fast appreciation the minute you reach saturation point flip them 
so that you take the equity so, out. So and as soon as you cross market. over a million, then you're looking at flipping them or selling them exactly. and moving into the next market. I put in about recycling. 200K, give or take. I want that to double. In the you want to double. Years. Okay, exactly. so double it over two to three year time My frame. equity has to be at least double before I decide to either build it or I sell it as is. And the cash flows are probably positive in this case as well, because most of these bungalows come with a separate finished entrance. Well, in order to double... Oh, so you're saying a lot of what you're buying, they already have a second unit. Or, or they just have There's the side entrance. entrance. They exactly. just have There's the side, a side entrance. entrance. It's yeah. a finished basement. You just have to put a kitchenette maybe. So maybe you're spending about ten to $15,000 just yeah. to get it perfectly ready. It's case by case. Some of them do come with a kitchenette. So so minor, minor. You're not trying to make them look super nice. You're just doing just, just enough, enough. Just to enough get to get them to rent Exactly the word yeah. I say. Just enough to get exactly to where I want it to be for my cash flows to be perfect for the next three to five years. So I'm not under that hammer to build it or hammer to like, you know, my, I'm losing money in the property. I buy it. I have total belief that this area is going to appreciate, but I also have the power to hold it if it doesn't because my rentability is fantastic in these areas because it's five minutes from the GO station that will take you right downtown. So the rentability and the quality of tenants in this area is absolutely fantastic. It's young professionals working downtown. Nice. Yeah. So there's a lot of fundamentals that make a ton of sense there. You're close to transit, close to water like you wanted, close to the highway. So holding is not a problem. Yeah. So that's a, that's one you wouldn't mind. So you would have on that that one, you would have rents around 3600 between the between the two units. Exactly. So you got $600 of cash flow. Yeah. And if you need maintenance, then you're, oh, okay. so you're, you're breaking just about, even. you're yeah. just about break even. Yeah. So they're easy to hold. And yeah, most of the months you'll make that five, $600 there's no maintenance you're making uh you're making roughly a break even so you kind of sit still for three years you let that the cash accumulate pay off whatever little things that come up and three years later hopefully you've and you know what the beauty of this is andrew you put this property for rent on a monday by wednesday you'll have multiple applications the rentability of these properties are just fantastic like you're talking about people are these are people that are tired of living in those little boxes yeah. downtown that have a family that need the space so for them, a three-bedroom main floor of a house with a backyard for the kids and dogs to run around and a garage and a parking spot means it means huge. They can still commute and they're not taking that much long. So it's perfectly poised for a young family or a young couple with a baby. So a typical target property in that area would be what, a thousand square feet? Yeah, or like 800 to a thousand square 800 feet. 800 to a thousand. Parking for two? Yeah, so you have full driveways and a detached garage. Are they double wide or single driveways or you'll look at both? Single driveways, tenant parking. So so the upstairs and the downstairs just communicate with each other. And or I usually will strategically put somebody in the basement that doesn't have a car because he's commuting downtown anyway because of the go. Uh, so okay, most okay. of the time, a person who's paying fourteen to $1,500 living in a basement is not likely to have a car. So okay. I'll usually just I'll put the driveway, garage, and backyard specifically for the main floor. And the basement guy is just happy to take that. $1,500 for the two rooms. Yeah, so they get a discount. They have they're a bathroom, kitchen, yeah. two bedrooms. And Lakeview is very close to Lakeshore Humber College. So you can also attract students yeah. sometimes. Do you try and do that? I don't mind it. Depending on like if I don't, I won't sign separate deals for each room. So I'll mm-hmm. say, look, if, yeah, if you're, least, if you're yeah. two people. And sometimes, these, like I said, a lot of these students are hardworking. They have double jobs and they go to school. So it's, it depends per, like, you know, case by case. That's I don't mind it. Yeah, I, I, well, I, anyone who follows the podcast knows that I have student rentals, but I mean, every, I'm always curious, um, what other options there are. And I like not being dependent on one type of tenant base. Exactly. Like knowing that you can rent to two different types is just more security on that, that, that creates that much more security in your investment. So what would you do? Cause you're kind of getting to the fringe of the border between Mississauga and you're right, uh, at, the, you're right at the borderline. Yeah, you're right. So technically still in Toronto. No, no, technically, technically you're in Mississauga, but I mean, you still but say I Toronto. just moved you. The reason why I told, gave you that example and not a Long Branch example, which is just in Toronto, which is just yeah. at the borderline, because that's just about to cross that 850-900 mark already. Okay. It's already passing that. So it's just So somebody's out. still coming back to that 800. Now my eyes are going towards yeah. Lakeview because like, I still want to be. And you know what? Lakeview and Port Credit still checkmark those fundamentals for me, even if they're not in Toronto. So now I'm starting to open up to the idea because it is today difficult to find a bungalow for less than 800 to 700,000. You can still get lucky for 25 foot lots, but for the same value for money, if you're getting just at the border with same logistics, it's fine. Okay. So I got a couple more questions for you here. Um, One thing I wanted to, uh, to know is how long have you been a realtor? 
Uh, since 2014, I got my real estate license. And the reason why I got it is because of pure frustration, because I wasn't getting good advice from good realtors. So, and I was doing a lot of the work myself, including research and investment, all that stuff. So I said, you know what? And a lot of people started coming up to me and saying, your portfolio is doing great. Why don't you help us? And blah, blah, blah. So I decided, I think Nest Best transition. I was already in sales yeah. with Nestle, quit my job, got my realtor license. And now uh, 80 to 90% of my uh, clients that I work with are all investors. So yeah. I only work specifically with investors. And the best thing is I'm already doing the research. So it becomes a very easy thing for me to say, if I'm telling somebody to buy a certain property, you know, the first question that they'll ask you is like, if it's so good, why don't you buy it yourself? And I'm like, I already have. So for me, it's like I put my money where my mouth is and I just take the investors and I help them buy exactly the same thing that I'm purchasing. So you're all basically doing the same thing and you you, you apply the same model. Uh, do they, so they kind of track the same areas you're exactly. tracking. They're and, following the yeah. fact that, you know what, he knows these things and he's, they're taking my expertise and. Uh, look, there's a lot of gimmicks in the market today. There's a lot of real estate agents in the market and there's a huge difference. There's a huge, massive difference between people being good at digital marketing and being really good at real estate. My question is, uh, it, the, it's important for investors to know the difference between somebody who's really, really good at social media and somebody who's really good at actually buying and investing and trading in real estate, yeah. right? You must have seen that a lot. And... For me, it's like what blows my mind is that these investment experts don't own a single property themselves. So how can you put your money in their hands? To me, it's a very natural thing to say, look, I own six properties within this five minute radius. So I'm suggesting you to buy the same. And these are my returns. It's a very easy pitch for me, right, to get these clients in. And they have that automatic uh, trust in the sense that, you know what, he knows what he's doing. And we're just, it's not just, I don't come across as, buy with me and sell with me. It's more about like, I purchased this and I can help you do the same. Now, being a realtor yourself, uh, obviously you're going to know which properties you want to buy. Um, how do you work that out with your clients that they see something that you had your eyes on or vice versa? Um, what do you, what do you do? So I sign a very simple, like, uh, uh, there is a definite possibility of a conflict of interest in some cases, but keep in mind, a lot of these clients, uh, Look, it's it's also the ethics that you have to follow in the sense that if I'm looking to buy something in Lakeview and they're looking to buy something in Lakeview at the same time, usually I've already bought it. So I've, I'm usually helping clients buy in a certain area they've already purchased. And that goes back into my pitch. It, I help them buy in areas that I've already purchased in. Yeah. So first I will buy, first I will test, first I will make sure it rents out and everything on paper makes sense. Then I will drive my investors there. It's an incredible so it's already approach. Done. Yeah. Right. And how many are you personally buying a year? Uh, so this year I bought two. Last year I bought two. The year before that, uh, 2016 was my main buying year. I bought four. So uh, it really, and keep in mind with the same fundamentals, 20% down, cash flows break even, closer to the water, 15 to 20 minutes from downtown, bungalows only. Yeah. Now you're, you're kind of getting more like the 20 minutes to downtown, depending on traffic, where you where you are there in poor credit. But uh Yeah. Uh, 20 to 30 minutes here like commute times are getting worse and worse yeah so it's just becoming accepted so so that will naturally expand over time and hopefully the city will do stuff to improve the transit we really hope so especially the new government yeah we'll we'll see wasn't it the same government (laughs) Uh, okay so obviously you've got some work ethic why don't you tell me a little bit about what's driving you uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning and, you know, what makes you put this kind of energy into what you've done start, you know, you started as an eye banker, which is not an easy task. It's a very heavy, heavy work intensive position uh, moving into what you're doing now. It's a very cheesy thing. And everybody says it, you have to do what you love, right? Once you find that and it's truly your love, I don't think I feel like working like every day is just awesome for me, right? I'm a, I'm not an early riser as opposed to the main people. Hey, wake up at six o'clock, go for a run. I roll out of bed around 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Sometimes I'm not at work at 12 o'clock until sometimes point is I'm doing things on my own terms in this business. Right. But I'll work till nine or 10 PM. Right. So I start late work until late. It gives me the freedom to do exactly the things I want to do. It's fun. It's exciting. And there's so many spectrums of real estate that it's just like every day is a new day, right? New neighborhoods coming in, new projects coming in. Now I'm starting to, like I said, diversify into mixed use commercial and different aspects by, uh, I started a fund, which is a small REIT um, with five high net worth investors. One of them, me as an investor, and we now buying properties on Lakeshore. 
for example. So uh, it's just different things. And you know what? You're constantly learning. I'm very, very hands-on. Uh, I manage half a million dollars in rental income a year between my commercial properties, all my residential properties. And I don't have a property manager. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you have help? I have an assistant who's a power assistant, right? Okay. And we handle everything in, in, in the, all the tenants have my phone number, all the tenants. Have, so I, I'm very hands-on. I don't leave it up to property managers to take portions of my mortgage. I'm doing the buying and selling myself. And, uh, but what I do need help is what I, what I, in the sense that what I do outsource a lot is a great accountant. I leave it up to him to do all my accounting. A great architect, Good a bookkeeper. great designer, a great bookkeeper, a great mortgage agent. These are the people that you have to completely rely on, build a relationship with. So if I'm getting five points less with CIBC versus what my mortgage agent is broken, I don't even think twice before working with that mortgage agent, always. They're part of my team now. They're part of who I who helped me grow. So I know what I'm good at and I do it myself. And I also understand that you can be a jack of all trades. That's why you've got to have the experts on your team helping you to be efficient almost every day. But property management is something I still haven't hired anybody else to do. Yeah, I've struggled with that one. I've had I've had them. I've obviously had my disappointments with them. Like, I guess at the end of the day, it's always the same challenges. No one cares as much about your business you know as the you The analogy do. I use is that it's like hiring somebody to run a restaurant for you. It's just, it's never going to be the same. They'll never care quite as much, They'll right? They'll never They're care never gonna quite put the, so much. Your relationships in. won't be as solid. Uh, but you know what? That's a challenge guys like you and me have to face as we grow constantly. Eventually there will be a day you have to like apportion certain part of your day. But you know, I'm, I'm honing more, uh, by having a full-time staff instead. So for example, I'm giving more responsibilities to my assistant. I'm helping her be like a junior partner in the firm or something like that. And she's taking more and more roles like that. She, so it's, it's good. Once you grow and you get to a level, you can start hiring people. So you have a REIT, which is a real estate investment trust for yeah, anyone who's not familiar with that. And basically, um, do you do you have uh, an exempt market dealer that you work with that that sells this, or is it just a private, privately held REIT? It's completely private. Uh, it's uh, just li- li- literally under LPGP structure. I have five partners and myself, so there's six partners. Uh, we right now we're finished purchasing our second property, and so again, right on Lakeshore and Kipling area. It's a mixed use and uh, that has 16 apartments, five, res- uh, five commercial and 11 residential. And it's our first purchase. And it's a value add proposition as well, because that's what I buy. For example, you buy something, you turn, I mean, the, the clause that I put in and I did a one-year closing was that I want vacant possession because obviously you want to start with market rents. I put capital improvements exactly where I wanted it to be to build it in the sense that uh, my rents are maximized. And this is a long-term hold and it's a five-year lock-in for every investor who bought in. And the, and the beauty is that on Lakeshore, now they're as of right, allowing you to build six stories. Sure. So it has an upside to it, to, to it as well. So you're kind of hoping a developer will give you a phone call and just say, Hey, we'll All buy the while it. you enjoy amazing cash flows and you're, yeah. and you're buying something that has amazing, uh, it's poised for a lot of equity growth. This is why it's so awesome to buy multiple properties in the same area that have large, uh, large lots. If you can get some large lots, especially a few in a row, and now you gotta be careful because the titles will merge. Uh, when you buy them beside each other, unless you do different names. So I, I don't know if you're a minor, but this, these properties are next to each other. We bought it under two separate corporations. Otherwise, the title merges. So yeah. we didn't do that. So what we did was we have a LP that has holding corporations that owns both the properties together. This is 100 feet on Lakeshore between yeah. two properties. 100 feet on Lakeshore. Wow. So that the huge development potential down the huge road. So you don't need to do that work. You can just put yourself in a position to benefit, right? It's kind of like... Well, it's like the game of Monopoly and you put your hotels out and you hope somebody will land on it. And, you know, maybe somebody comes around and, and decides, hey, I want to develop that. You get a phone call and all of a sudden now it's like dollar signs light up. And uh, and you know what? From the time that we bought it, the gross uh, rents at the time were 160000 and I just finished. It's 100% occupied now and I'm almost at 280000 in rent. So my cap rate is about 4%, which is almost unheard of in Toronto. All the while I'm sitting on a property that has a good potential to... Uh, appreciate because of the fact that a builder will pick it up i'm like absolutely like shocked that you got somebody to agree to vacant possession on how many units 16 units well the thing is that this was a really really badly managed building it was all like you know and the thing is i think he was renting it to a lot of humber students it was very close to humber which played out in my benefit so i said well let their semesters finish and then you can you know most of them are uh gonna leave anyway so he managed to get vacant possession he must have uh given them incentives or whatnot i said it, it's got to close only if I get market rent. Was this That's an it. off-market deal? 
this was an off-market deal. I actually approached uh, both the property owners separately. So I bought one first and I bought the other and the, they didn't know that I was combining the deal either. Yeah. So I ended up getting two properties next to each other and now I have 100 feet. Um, and then, you know, there's there's a lot of potential of upside. That's incredible. So just jumping back into the, the work ethic uh, and what drives you, obviously, you know, you're working hard. Uh, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Do you have a set goal of this is enough, you know, hit a net worth of 100 million and I'm good? Or uh, like, what, what are you trying to hit? Um, I think uh, I'm, I'm really, really personally, what really excites me is the building part of the part of the whole thing. And obviously, when I just started, I was, you know, almost like you could say broke. Uh, I didn't have the luxury to start building things. But over time, I'm starting to get more and more involved in uh, building of these homes, building of, you know, uh, for example, buy a big lot, sever the lots, build two, stuff like that. Design really in, in, excites me. And obviously, if you if you're doing the business portion of it right, you can really have a lot of fun with all this. So I would say, you know, just keep going. Today, my portfolio is 14 million. When I started, I said, you know what, when I have 25 million in assets, I'll stop. And I'll, and I'll, but you know what? I, I don't see myself stopping because I absolutely love what I do. And as long as I'm doing it in a way that I have the financial freedom, my fundamentals are strong, my loan to value is low, and I'm giving back. So for example, I've uh, started a mentorship for a lot of students that I write out of university because I think there's a huge gap between what they teach you in university and what you can actually do in the business world. I'm starting a boot camp uh, that I'm teaching at Ryerson soon. So I'm giving back to a lot of young kids who are looking to do entrepreneurship. So it's also about giving back the right way, right? All day you spend on how to make money, but then you also have to figure out ways to give back. For example, you're doing a podcast, you're giving people that value that they really, really need by getting the experts and listening to them. Mm -hmm. So I don't see this as an end goal. I think this is just a fun journey and I just want to keep writing it until, you know, it just one fine day, I was like, all right, I'm tired and I'm going to stop. So for now, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, that's that's incredible um, that you you know you enjoy what you're doing so much, and obviously you've transitioned a couple of times uh, into the role that you're currently in, and uh, it's nice to see you having fun with it. Do you have a family? Uh, my family's all back home, so I have some cousins, and I have a great set of friends that I that I still have from university, and I have an awesome set network of people that I you know enjoy my free time with. And okay, so you're here by that. yourself. How I'm long have you been myself, in- married to my work? <laughs> How long have you been in Canada? Uh, I came here when uh, in 2003 when I was, I think, uh, 18 or 17 18? years old. And yeah. you came from? India. India, okay. Yeah. I went straight to Wilfrid Laurier University and uh, my dad said, I think it was in the article, that I'll carry you for one semester and then you're on your own and I've been on my own since. So you worked during university to, to pay the bills? I yeah. had uh, I had other jobs like, uh, you know, I was raising money for the alumni. I, had, I was working in people's jewelry, small jobs yeah. to get you like just... Just get enough to pay. Pocket money, right? Yeah. And then you have the student loan that you walk out with and hence you transition into yeah. getting that nine to five job, which I did. I paid my student debt. I saved a lot of money in New York. I didn't have a life there, which is why I saved everything I made. You work like, you know, my, they say nine to six, there it was six to nine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I banking uh, the horror stories I've heard. Yeah. So I've obviously. been through it all yeah. and, uh, you know, here I am and real estate is my passion. So. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. So uh, that's a nice transition. If people wanted to get a hold of you and and learn more about what you do, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? So uh, my Instagram, I guess, Mink Real Estate, I just started. Uh, I think it was inevitable. Everybody's like, you need to start getting a little bit more on the social media thing. I'm just like, you know, so bad at these things, but I'm starting to get a little bit more involved. So Mink Real Estate is my Instagram page. Uh, my website is uh, www.minkrealty.ca. Very easy to get a hold of me. You can just type my name on Google. You'll have 10 different ways of getting hold of me. Uh, and I've had many more publications, even other than Toronto Life, where that article popped up. So, uh, you know, it gives me a lot of credibility and also makes a lot of people reach out to me just by typing my name or even if you say investment in Toronto, I'll come up. Yeah, you're planting all the seeds right now. Well, it's it's not hard to see why people would want to contact you. You're, you're obviously uh, somebody who knows a heck of a lot and has, you know, you've got it figured out with what you're doing. So yeah, thank you so much. Love coming to see that you, for sure. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, a couple of quick things yeah. to just get, help people get, get to know you a little bit more personally. Um, what do you do? Like favorite hobby when you're not doing real estate? Uh, you know what? I'm a traveler. Traveler? Like anytime I get, uh, you know, I love to travel. Being in Toronto, it's impossible to get away from work. So I say that, you know, every two, three months, I just take off for a week or like, for example, I've made a rule this year that I'm not going to work in the month of December. So I'm going to like travel and, you know, this year I'm going to Turkey. I'm going to India again to see some more family and travel around, going to Dubai. 
So I love traveling. Uh, other than that, uh, I'm, a, I'm an outdoor person. So I'll always be biking. I'll always be running. And the reason why I live right by the lake is there's amazing hiking trails. So you'll always find me outdoors. Um, and that's that. You just hang out with the friends and yeah. Awesome. And one piece of advice that you would give, you know, one of these students that's maybe going to enter your boot camp, what's, what's your number one takeaway you want them to get after hearing you speak? Uh, one of the things is I think uh, there's a huge lack of patience amongst the people who are coming right out of university. And I think it's not just 100% their fault because there is a lot of pressure through social media on these people to make it like uh, rich quick. Uh, it took me a lot of work, six to seven years to even come out there and say, hey, I'm a millionaire and it sounds weird. But uh, you have to put in the work and you have to be uh, patient. But the ultimate thing is that the minute you know that what you're doing is not resonating with you and you don't see yourself enjoying it in the long run, it's time to make a switch. And I'm not saying quit and start going into it, but start planning a transition. And always this applies for real estate, this applies for every industry. Know how to separate people that are actual experts versus people who are digital marketing expert of that field. It's a huge thing. I have a fundamental problem with it. And I'm calling out every one of those people who are saying that they're experts. They should absolutely know to put their money where their mouth is and then sell it to people. Yes. It's very important. Yeah, that goes for, you know, anyone selling anything like people, people trying to sell any product at all. If they haven't bought it, Period. it's borderline unethical. Like if Period. you're not, if you're not willing to buy it, then why are you selling it to someone that's else? Right. That, that's, that's the biggest thing I think in the industry that bothers me. I mean, I ignore it and I move on, but it's, yeah. it's something that I think our industry should know. And it's up to the consumers to understand. And find the right person for that. Well, yeah, of course, I should, you know, caveat to that. There is, you know, you can't buy every type of real estate. But, uh, you know, you probably would tell people, well, if you want to buy in that area, that's not really my specialty. Um, you know, I can write you the offer, but, you know, they're probably somebody that could advise you better. Exactly. And I do the same. Like yeah. when people come to me, like, can you help us buy property in Waterloo, Barrie? I have people who I trust in these regions. Yeah. And I just simply refer them because that's not my area of expertise. Yeah. I haven't done a deal in outside of like my expertise. Yeah, I yeah. just don't. And it's totally fair to say he's the right guy. He'll help you and take a referral fee. There's nothing wrong with that. No, that's awesome. Well, so here we could talk. Uh, yeah, we could talk a lot, and we'll have to do this again. Uh, I'd, I'd love to follow your progress and and you know have you back on and and see what your next move is. But uh, absolutely, thanks for coming on, and we'll we'll see you on the next one. Thanks so much. And Andrew, one more thing. Like I've listened to a lot of podcasts. Your podcast really stood out to me because I think you're bringing the right people here to talk. And that's another advice. Like, you know, you got to listen to these podcasts. There's availability of these podcasts and you have to pick the right one and you can gain so much from this stuff. So thanks for doing this for everybody. Yeah. And on that note, so for everyone listening, if you're enjoying this, please rate and review the podcast on uh, on iTunes and anywhere it'll let you. It just helps more people to find it. Absolutely. And, and you know, ultimately that's going to help more people, which makes me happy. And uh, maybe we can grow our meetup a little bit bigger. Yeah, exactly. Network gets bigger. Those are all good things. So anyways, thanks again, Sahil. My pleasure. We'll see you My the next pleasure. time. Thanks for having me.